morning. Thank you to the Nelson family. We have beautiful families in our church. We have beautiful people in our church. <clears throat> well, we're starting our second sermon in our Advent season. Last week we talked about watching, and this week we are going to talk about preparing. If you have your Bibles, turn in them to 2 Peter, not 1 Peter, but 2 Peter, chapter 3. We're going to be reading from verses 8 to 15a. You ever hear somebody use the word A or B? They just mean the first part of a particular verse. Let me remind you while we are uh, searching for that passage, our objectives over the next couple of weeks in our sermon series. The objectives are to give Christ, number one, to give Christ his due glory and honor for this Christmas season. We are not a bah humbug church. We want you to enjoy the Christmas season, eat some extra cookies, take an extra shot of insulin, eat some more cookies, have a Christmas ham or a turkey if you're like my wife and you don't eat ham. Enjoy the Christmas season. Give gifts, receive gifts, say thank you, love one another, have coquito, non-alcoholic, of course. Cremas, non-alcoholic, of course. No, says everybody's like, there's no such thing. <laughs> That's what I tell myself. But don't neglect is what we are charging you to do. Do not neglect the glory and the honor that is due to the Lord Jesus Christ during this season. Number two, our objective is to give right perspective on the Christmas season in a secular context. It's easy to lose focus during these times of trying to make sure Amazon's going to deliver our package on time, making sure that we get to the mall before it gets really, really, really crazy. And it's easy, it's easy to just lose perspective. And what we are calling you to do with our candle lighting and our Advent uh, season is to remember the perspective that we have to have as Christians in this secular context that Christ is, to be cliche, the reason for the season. Also, we want to explain the meaning of Christ's coming. What does it mean? We see nativity scenes all around our neighborhoods, hopefully. We have a woman who does a beautiful nativity. We see that, but what is the meaning behind a baby in a manger? Why is that significant? And our goal is to explain that during these four weeks. Maybe you have somebody at your work who doesn't really understand what the meaning is behind Christmas. Encourage them to come with you. You never know. They may say yes. I have a couple neighbors that I invite every Sunday. I know they're going to say no, but one Sunday they may say yes. And then finally, we want to bridge the context of Christ's first coming with the hope of his return. We don't live in the time before Christ's first coming. We live in the time between his second coming. Christ has come. Salvation has been given to the nations through the death and resurrection of Christ. But we await the consummation of our salvation in his return. Let's look at our passage this morning in 2 Peter <clears throat> and read along 
uh, as I re- silently as I read along aloud. <clears throat> but do not overlook this one fact, beloved. The passage begins with a but. It's a it's a disjunct or a conjunction or a disjunction. It's taking us in a different direction. So we have to ask ourselves always what's going on before that, and I'm going to explain that. Do not overlook this one fact, beloved. So he's speaking to Christians, that with the Lord one day is a thousand years. And a thousand years is as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you. Not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. And then when the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn? Sounds like a real encouraging Christmas uh, passage, doesn't it? But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found in him without spot or blemish and at peace and count the patience of the Lord as salvation. Let's pray. Father, we await the second coming of the Son and the knowledge that when Jesus comes, for those who know him, who've been called according to his purpose, that Jesus returns for us for the consummation of our salvation. And so we are encouraged this morning. Lord, there are many, though, who walk today on this earth who mock your name, and who do not understand that your patience, the fact that you have not come, is nothing but your mercy that they should repent in the day. Lord, it is my prayer that there are some here today who are living their lives as if you will never return. They are acknowledging not your grace and your mercy. They do not consider their life to be, every moment of their life to be, your grace and mercy in the hopes that they should repent and come to the knowledge of salvation in Jesus Christ. It is my prayer, Holy Spirit, that you would open up their hearts as only you can do and that they would respond to the gospel call this morning. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Last week we talked about the concept of waiting. This week is prepared. Last week was waiting. What is the difference? Waiting, as we defined it, as the concept of Scripture, in a con- as a concept of Scripture defines it, waiting is that we wait always in the promises of God. God is a promise-making God. He tells us he's going to do something, and he does it. He can be counted on to come through 
But not only that, we learned that waiting calls us to look eagerly to the future because of what God has done in the past. Because we have seen God and his works, his mighty works of creation, his mighty miracles, his work of deliverance in the exodus, his work of sending the son the first time to die on the cross and then to raise him to life, the world has witnessed God's mighty, mighty works. And because of that, we are hopeful for the future, that God will come and do his work again. But today we're talking about preparing. And the difference between waiting and preparing is one of thinking and doing. Waiting focused on having the appropriate mindset and or beliefs concerning Christ's second coming. But preparing for Christ's second coming is all about the attitude and actions that spring forth from our mindset that hopes in the God who always fulfills his purposes. Let me say that again. Preparing for Christ's second coming is about the attitude and actions that spring forth from our mindset. That is, that waiting, having the right view of what is coming, the Lord that is coming, that who, the one who fulfilled his promises in the past is going to fulfill them in the future, that right theology, that right mindset is to produce in us works of preparation in the God who always fulfills his promises. I want to take a look at our passage, and I want to explain a couple things about the passage this morning, about what it means for us as we prepare for the return of Christ. Number one, we are to prepare for Christ's imminent return. We are to prepare ourselves for Christ's imminent return. To call Christ's return imminent is to say that Christ could return at any time. <laughs> For some reason, it happens every now and then, it's usually a couple times in a year, somebody cracks a code in the Bible and they have figured out when God is returning to the earth. And for some reason... We all go buy extra Campbell's soup and extra tuna fish and we stock up just in case the world is going to end. By the way, not even your canned goods are going to be non-perishable in that day. They're all going to get burned up. But scripture tells us that Christ's return is imminent. And so there are some who go really, really far off and they, they're going to tell us that on this day at this time because uh, a bird flew into their window and it was a sign from God that God's returning. And they're convinced by it and they lead people astray. There are some people who go that far, but then there are other people who really get bogged down into the signs of revelation and they are convinced that until those signs come and until those signs happen, we are just fine. But that is not the attitude of the authors of the Bible. 
The attitude of the authors of the Bible, the teaching of the authors of the Bible is that Christ's return is imminent. It could happen today. It could happen today. And many of us don't believe that. But scripture makes it very clear that Christ could come at any moment. One New Testament theologian, Wayne Grudem, says, Christ's imminent return is the dominant hope of the New Testament church. He says, he cites several New Testament verses that predict that Christ's return will be sudden, it will be dramatic, and it will be visible. Matthew 24, 44 said this. Jesus said this over 2,000 years ago. You must all so be ready. And when did he mean be ready? After certain signs came to pass? No, he meant right now. Be ready. Be ready right now. You must also be ready for the Son of Man, that is himself, is coming at an hour you do not expect. If you're expecting it, you can be certain of one thing. He's not coming at that moment. That's what Scripture's telling us. Revelation 22:20 20 says, "Surely I am coming soon," to which John responds in this way, "Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Soon is an indefinite time. And so what we are talking about when we when we talk about the concept of preparing, do not think that you have more time. That is not the posture that the Holy Spirit through the inspired word of God expects his people to have. The posture that the Holy Spirit expects his people to have is one that is ready. For Christ could come at any moment. Look at our passage in verse 8. Peter begins by saying, but do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that the Lord, that with the Lord, one day is a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. It begins with a but. That means something's going on. The particular book that we're reading from is actually a letter. It was a letter like you, I don't know, many of you don't write letters anymore. You write emails and text messages. There was this thing back in the day, they were called pens and paper. <laughs> I don't know, I didn't use it. My mom used to try and get me to write letters. I'm like, I'm not writing a letter. But it means a lot when she writes those to me today. I love it. I could get those words right away on a text message, but I have to wait four days for them. They would write letters to a church. A church would send a letter to an apostle. You gave us, you know, we were looking for some kind of guidance here, and they would write a letter back. Or they would hear that something was going on to the church, and the apostles, who were the caretakers of the church, would write a letter to the church. So letters are always written to a particular group of people in a particular time and for a particular purpose. So it's important for us to answer the question before we go any further, what's going on in the context of this church at this moment, so that we can answer why he begins with a but. These epistles are specific churches, specific instructions for specific occasions. In this particular letter, Peter is writing most probably to the churches of Asia Minor. 
Those are the churches that are in modern-day Turkey. They were the, the, the Asian part. They were the, the west or eastern part of the Greek and Roman Empire at the time. He's writing to them, and the reason is that they are being misled by false teachers. And in this case, these false teachers rejected the authority of God and the apostles, and they pursued sexual immorality. Let me just say something to you as a, by the by, when we reject God's word as the final authority, what usually follows is sexual immorality. Yeah. Or sexual confusion. Or sexual asceticism. That is the denial of sexual pleasures. Monasteries are filled with people who have not read the word of God correctly. If they've read it at all. Just by the way, do you think those monasteries are sexually pure? They ain't. When you neglect the word of God, error and sin comes into play. You can't, you can't have anything else but that. It is not within man who, who walks to direct his own steps. Man can't do it without God's help. Without God telling you what to do, you're walking right off that cliff. Every time. So Peter warns this church not to practice this lifestyle that these false teachers are practicing because it rejects the truth of God's word. And the passage begins with a command not to overlook this one fact. That is a fact that is established by the inspired word of God in the Psalms. Namely, that with the Lord, one day is a thousand years, and a thousand years is as one day. What Peter is saying to this church is, don't be taken captive by these false teachers. I want you to look to the word of God, which you've trusted in. And in the Psalms, we know this about our God. It doesn't matter how spiritual or religious a particular person is. The word of God is true. And here's what scripture tells us. With the Lord, a day is a thousand years and a thousand years is a day. Now, it's important to note that Peter is not at this moment trying to give you an actual one-to-one exchange rate between human 24-hour periods and God's life, a day, a thousand years. He's not concerned with that. He is making a point, and it is this. To God, time means nothing. To God, time means means nothing. And many of us sit in our arrogance and we lean back and we say, how long has it been since God has committed or done his last miracle? Been a long time, hasn't it? As if God has fallen asleep. Peter's point is, what you think is a long time, what you count as slow, God does not count as slow. Every moment that he does not rend that sky wide open is a moment of grace and mercy for you to repent of your sins. Every moment. When God does not come back, it's not because he's fallen asleep. It's because you haven't repented. And in his mercy, 
He is waiting for you to repent. He says, don't overlook this one fact. Don't forget the word of God. Don't forget that what these false teachers are telling you is not what the Bible tells you. So listen to me, if you are sympathetic with Catholicism, listen to me very gently. I'm not, not attacking the Catholics. I'm just attacking their false theology. The word, trans, the word of God transcends the word of the Pope. But look at his hat. I know, I see his hat. It's impressive. He could walk right into uh, Carnival and not, he would blend in perfectly. He's a man. Paul said, if I, this is Paul, said, if I, an apostle, or if an angel from heaven, if, if Paul were to come, an apostle or an angel from heaven were to burst open in light and they were to contradict the word of God, Paul says, let either me or that angel, if we contradict God's word, go to hell. That's what he said. Galatians chapter one. And then he said, in case you didn't get that point, let me make it one more time because he makes it twice. If I or an angel from heaven were to come into contradict the words of this epistle. Let us be anathema. That means eternally cursed. And these false teachers have come into Peter and they're saying, don't worry. Don't worry. God's not coming. He's not coming. Don't you listen to John Hagee? These certain signs have to happen. And the posture of the church is God could come at this moment. The psychology behind these false teachers is interesting. Peter describes them as scoffers. What's a, what's a scoffer? A, a scoffer is someone who deliberately mocks the Lord. In this particular passage, someone who deliberately mocks, but who mocks and chides at another person like children on a playground. Children are mean. Anybody who doesn't believe in, the original, in original sin, they don't have children. I'm, I'm, I'm afraid to walk by the, by the playground sometimes because I'm afraid of the abuse I'm going to hear as I walk by. Walking by to, how come you're fat? Oh. Why is your hair that color? You walk funny. It's like, oh my gosh. <laughs> Peter calls these people scoffers. They're laughing it up. God's not coming. You're fine. Come on. You don't really believe that stuff, do you? You really believe a guy put a bunch of animals on a boat? You really believe that a guy rose from the dead? That's what they're doing. And Peter says, mm -mm. between creation and consummation, it can seem like the Lord has fallen asleep that he is neglecting the affairs in this world and evil men are ever on the throne while righteous men are on the scaffold. It can look like God is not there. If you were there, God, why would all of these things be happening? We think we know better than God does. God, if you were there, there wouldn't be suffering. But God didn't spare his own son. It shows us that God has a different concept of suffering than we do. And that God understands the fuller meaning of suffering. 
The world sees all of this as evidence that God is not real. That he is our creation. Because they assume something about God's character that the Bible never says. Scoffers feel a sense of comfort when they, there appears to be no consequences for their sins. In our passage this morning, the false teachers have deliberately forgotten the marvelous works of creation, if you read the passage before, and consequently have found no reason to fear that God will return to reclaim his fallen creation. So Peter's goal is to demonstrate to the church that these false teachers have neglected the testimony of Scripture and are living in contradiction to it to their own destruction. In other words, he's asking the church, which one are you going to go with here? You're going to go with the real authority of God or you're going to go with the false authority of false teachers whose lifestyle and sensuality and sexuality demonstrates they are not men of God. Oh my gosh, would, would that the American church would get that today. Look at the size of his church. He must be teaching the word of God because his church has X amount of people in it. I remember somebody came to me one day and said, <clears throat> right as I started preaching, he said, oh, I can tell though the Holy Spirit is on you. He said, God is going to give you a big church. Ooh. I don't want a big job, uh, big church. You can get bigger if God wants you to get bigger. If it gets bigger, it's because God wants us to be bigger. Let me tell you this. The great theologian, Notorious B.I.G., once said, Mo money, mo problems. Mo money, mo problems. That's not in the Bible, but it should be. It's kind of in there. It's kind of in there. Just, I like the slang. Anyway, <sighs> the psychology behind these false teachers is that because God has not come, he will never come. That's what they're saying. God does not live according to our schedules. He acts when, where, and however he pleases. And he tells us in his word that his return will be sudden, it will be visible, it will be awesome. It will be terrifying for some. And we are therefore to live our lives as if the Son of Man could return at this very moment. Like the Hebrews who in the day of their exodus from Egypt were prepared with ready attire, ready to leave their possessions behind, we too must live at the ready to leave this world behind and to follow our Lord into his glory. Peter says, number two, prepare in repentance. Verses 9 and 10, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Let me make one thing clear about that passage, which I don't spend a lot of time in my notes doing. This is not saying that there are people who will be saved or who won't be saved that God really wanted to but was incapable of saving. That is not what it is saying. This is called God's will of disposition. 
it is different from his will of prescription. What he has decided to do and what his wishes are are two different things. God does according to his divine will. There will be no one who the Father loses. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. What's interesting about that last word is that the passage seems to go into a different direction. It seems to be literal burning and coming, and in fact, I believe it is, but the point of that burning up is to show the emptiness of men's works. Verses 9 and 10 are connected by a Greek conjunction that says, but now, in order to contrast the human perspectives of slowness and quickness. The whole passage is a back and forth between man's faulty perspective on God's acts in history with God's patience towards sinful human beings, giving them ample opportunity to turn from their sins and repentance. In other words, he says, you as a human being think it's slow, God's being slow, when really it's not even a matter of time for God. Remember, he's not in time. Slow is something we use to say it's not as fast as it should be. But that's talking about time. And to God, that is not a, con uh, that is not a concept that is for him. For God, every moment that we live and that he does not come back is simply a moment of mercy. Those who mock God dangerously chide him for his inaction, demanding a miracle like the Pharisees and even the devil himself. But Peter's point is that God's perceived slowness, slowness is really not slowness at all. It is an act of mercy. And he extends at this very moment to wicked men and women the gift of salvation in Christ. Peter not only contrasts slowness with patience, but slowness with lightning speed. Since you think God is slow, he says, he will come like a thief in the night. In other words, if you think he's slow, wait until you see how fast he is in judgment. I want you to think about this when I use the word fast. Think of the word final. That's what it means. It's not about running the 40 in under four seconds. It's about finality. You don't get a second chance after God comes. When he comes like a thief in the night, you better be ready. If you're ready for thieves to come in the middle of the night, here in this world, you better be afraid of the God who will break into this world in glory because it will be final. I don't care how big the gun is or the baseball bat that you have next to your bed to protect yourself from thieves that come in the night. When God Almighty returns, he returns in finality. It's over. It's over. Wait, 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 God. No, no. Over at that moment. That's what the thief in the night example means. It's over. You don't have more time. 
And if he is slow from our perception now, not acting, when he comes, it's over. It's final. It is too late. Don't be foolish and think that God is going to give you more time than the moment you have right now in the present. Christ's imminent return beckons all to repentance. For those who acknowledge Christ as Savior and who eagerly wait for him, repentance is the posture of our lives. <coughs> it's the attitude that we are to have to- towards both God and, and, listen to me, one another. Repentance towards God and one another. God says, you're not right with me while you're not right with your brother. Get right with your brother. I know it's going to be an uncomfortable conversation. Have it. Get right with your brother that you might be right with God. This is a moment where we confess our sins to God. Our entire life is to be one of perpetual confession, repentance. Not That is not feeling bad about ourselves, but understanding that when we do wrong, our posture is to say to God, we did wrong. Not to say, "Mm, let me tell you, God, it's a little bit different than you think. Here's why I did this sin. No, the Christian is characterized by a heart and an attitude that says, be merciful upon me, a sinner. However, for those who are like these false teachers and who follow their life, who eat and drink and live as if the Lord will never return, to those who mock the perceived slowness of the Lord, God beckons you this moment to acknowledge and to live in him. This moment right now is an opportunity to repent of your sins and believe upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. You don't know the future. Finally, he says, since all these things, third point, is to prepare in righteousness. Since all these things, he says, are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? Let let me tell you the difference between the Christian and the non-believer's mindset and worldview about the current world. It is that this world, there are no solutions for this world. No long-term anyway. If I elect this guy, if this guy gets into office, then we're never going to have poverty again. Wrong. Wrong. If I elect this woman, there's not going to be war. Wrong. Wrong. They are simply, all they are doing is organizing the chairs on the deck of the Titanic. This thing is going down. You say, that is a negative message. Do you have a Bible? In my Bible, it's page 1142. I'm not going with you. I'm going with God. And he says, that's how this sucker's going down. In life, listen to me, there aren't solutions. There are only trade-offs. Trade-offs, not solutions. You make one person happy, you're going to make somebody else upset. 
I wore jeans this morning. Can everybody see it? Some people are really happy. Some people are really upset. And I don't care. But you can't make everybody happy. I'm so glad that the Lord taught me that early in my ministry. You can't make everybody happy. Well, listen to me. Life is about trade-offs. There are no solutions. This world is going to be consumed. It's not going to always be here. Talk about global warming. It's going to get real warm when God returns. Listen to what he says. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, in other words, his conclusion, he, how, how has Peter reached his conclusion? He didn't go pull up Scientific American or Scientific Journal. How did he reach his conclusion? God said it. God said it in his word in Psalm 90, verse 4. That's what he said. And since God's word is completely infallible, it's going to happen. So since we know it's coming, how ought we to live? He says this, to live lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. The heavenly bodies there refers to outer space. But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. This earth is going to crumble. Christians are new creations living in this old earth that is passing away and will one day be judged by fire. But as new creations, Christians, you are not yet fully consummated in this life. You are not perfect in this life. That's why Peter needs to tell you to be holy and godly. That which is to come Namely, God's kingdom is the kingdom of light and righteousness and cannot fellowship with darkness. As the new kingdom comes, God must first dissolve both the earth and the heavenly bodies, which are all subject to decay. There is a fundamental law of physics. It's called the law of equilibrium, or as Mr. Hearn taught us, it's the law of entropy. That is that all, all usable energy is running out. Our universe is headed towards a cosmic big crunch. However, in the meantime, Christians are to live righteous lives in expectation of the new world where only righteousness will dwell. So what sort of people ought we to be? Number one, he says, be holy. Christians are to be holy. What does that mean? It means you're to be pure. It means that there is not to be impurity in your life. And impurity as the Bible defines it. Not as the world defines it. And I don't have a lot of time to get into all of this. And all of the specific things, you can read the virtues list in the New Testament. But holiness means to be set apart. It means to be it means to be separated from the wickedness of the world. How do you know? You look at God's word. Here's what God's word tells me. I know many things seem right in man's eyes that God opposes by his word. This world today is trying to cram down your throat. Not evil, 
but evil masked as good. We just, this past week, Stephanie walked into the room. The kids were watching a kid's show, saw something she didn't like. They're pushing, they're pushing stuff down my kid's throat that I don't want my kids watching. And she said, that's it. You're not watching it anymore. And they were okay with it. Why is the world doing that? It's not because they want to be evil. They're not twirling their handlebar mustache like, mm -hmm. <laughs> They think their righteousness, they think their way is right. They think it's good. Listen to me. Without God, you wouldn't know good if it came up and slapped you in the face. You say it's common sense. Baloney. Morality is not all common sense but especially God's holiness. How could anyone have ever known that to touch the Ark of the Covenant would be the end of your life? What is it about that? It's just like every other thing. Why can't I touch that? It's made of gold. It's made of wood. Why is it so special? God said, my presence, this contains my, my law, it will be holy. You with your profane body cannot touch it and live. Thank God he told us. But God not only tells us to be separated by holiness, being holy, that's what the word means, to be separated, ritualistically pure and clean, he also tells us to be godly. Christians stop short too often. They treat the Bible like it's a list of do's and don'ts. Don't taste, don't touch, don't have happiness. And then you'll be a Christian. Don't sleep with, don't, don't drink, don't chew or run with boys who do. We Right, yes, holiness, according to God's word, but then what? Godliness. Let me ask you something. When you read Genesis and it says that man was created, how was he created? In the image of God. To follow after God. The difference between you and an ape is not 1% DNA. It's that the ape doesn't bear the image of God. And so Peter says, here's what you do in your preparation. You separate yourself from the sins of the world and you live like God. Well, you say, oh, man, but we can never be God. Where is there an example of a human being living like God? I'm so glad you asked. That's what we're celebrating with Advent. And the word became flesh. And listen to me. The Greek word there is that he tabernacled with us. The same word for tabernacle. He dwelt with us. You saw what it was to be a perfect human. Not in Buddha. Not in Gandhi. Not in Martin Luther King Jr., but in Jesus Christ. To be perfect is to live like Jesus Christ. What are we to do right now as we wait for God? Live like Christ. Every single motivation for every relationship is as unto the Lord. What type of husband should you be? As unto the Lord. What type of father? As unto the Lord. Son, children obey your parents for this is right. As unto the Lord, 
Every command in scripture is after the Lord. For if we are in Christ, we are new creatures. The old has passed away, the new has come. It is not simply don't do, it is do like God. Live like Christ. We are created after his image. <clears throat> the Ten Commandments are a list of don't do. And a man, a young man with a lot of money, ran up to Jesus one time and said, I've kept them all. I kept them all. Never, I, I always remember God. I, I never take his name in vain. I never make any graven images. I remember the Sabbath day. I honor my mother and father. I've never murdered anybody. I never committed adultery. I never stole anything. I never lied. And I've never coveted. And Jesus said, great. Good, you've separated yourself from the world because the world does a lot of that. Now, there's one thing left to do. You got the holiness part right, so you think. Leave everything you have, follow me. The godliness part. Leave it all, follow me. We stop at thou shalt have no other gods before me. Yes, but that does not stop there. Thou shalt have no other gods before me is a negative command. The positive command is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. The negative command is make no graven images. The positive command is worship the Lord in spirit and in truth. The negative command is thou shalt not take the Lord thy God's name in vain. But the positive command is making his name famous among the nations by declaring the good news of Jesus Christ. The negative command is remember the Sabbath day. That's a positive. Worshiping though at God in service and in love. Honor thy mother and thy father is the positive command. It's not just don't disobey them, but honor them all of their lives. Thou shalt not kill. The positive command of that is love your neighbor as yourself. Thou shalt not commit adultery. That is to live sexually pure lives. It means wives submit to your husbands as unto the Lord and husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church. Thou shalt not steal. It is to be a cheerful giver. Thou shalt not lie means to speak the truth in love. Thou shalt not covet means to store up for yourself treasures in heaven and not on earth. We are not simply as Christians to not do. We are to be like Christ. Hence the name Christian. passage ends by this. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these things, that is the coming of the Lord, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace and count the patience of our Lord as salvation. The consequences of the reality of the imminent destruction of the fallen world should cause believers to wait for the new heavens and the new earth as new creations living in righteousness. What do we do now between when Christ came and when he's coming? We are to prepare in holiness and in godliness. In fact, the word there in the Greek, the diligent, is in the aorist imperative. 
The aorist tense, all it is is a snapshot. It is to say that it is to take a whole thing that happened, take a snapshot of it and say that's what it's to be. And when he uses the word diligent there in the aorist tense, he's saying this should be what we see about your whole life. Your whole life should be characterized by diligence in holiness and in godliness. Not sometimes on Sunday. Another great theologian, Andre 3000, once said, I'm torn between Saturday night and early Sunday morning. I don't know I'm somewhere stuck in between. Some of you are torn between Monday through Saturday and then try to live for God one day a week. But Peter says, be diligent. Your whole life should be characterized by diligence. That is focus on what? On holiness and godliness. Not just on the outside, but on the inside as well. And this passage, for like, like most passages, takes two, it takes two perspectives. Christian, what is your job? You said you were a believer. You got baptized in that pool. Now, how do you live? Peter says, if you're a believer, holiness and godliness, be diligent in it. Let this be your entire life. Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. I know that's also a Shirelle song, by the way. Y'all didn't know I was down like that, did you? I am down, more down than you. Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, I see you. But not only when people see us, when people don't see us, God looks at the heart, he looks at our intentions. Be holy, be godly. But, but, that's not it. There are some who have yet to profess Christ. Some who have yet to profess Christ. And for them, this passage ought to leave a sinking feeling in your gut this morning that the Lord will return. Whether he comes to you or you go to him, you don't know when your last moment on earth will be. And thus, our verb for action is prepare. Christian, you prepare in being diligent in holiness and godliness, but non-believer, you who have yet to make a profession of faith in Jesus Christ, and I mean a real one, I mean one that comes with real heartbrokenness of offending God by your rebellion and sin called contrition. You say, how do I know if I have one? Look at your life now. Is it characterized by diligence and holiness and in godliness? Non-believer, listen to me. These are the words of God. He will return like a thief in the night. Are you prepared? 
There is nothing, according to this passage, more important in this life, non-believer, than that you reconcile with God. Why? Because that car you spend Monday through Friday slaving over, and most Sundays to reject God in the worship with his people, he says is going to be burn up. It's going to be burn up. And he's even going to compassionately show you how frivolous those cars are when a thief steals it. Or when it inevitably breaks down. Or when you work and work to get that iPhone and that iPhone is obsolete the next month. What he wants you to see is that everything you do in this life will be burned up. The only thing that will carry over into the next, holiness and godliness. But that begins with repentance. Turning from sin and following Christ Jesus. We marvel at the pyramids. We marvel at Stonehenge. But do we ever stop to ask I wonder if those men and women are with God today. You say, do people really ask that? Only the pastors of this church every time we have to do a funeral. We have a conversation. Did this person know Jesus? They're marks of Jesus. Yes, they built pyramids. Yes, they were important at their work. But what did they do in diligence, in godliness, and in holiness that gives us the right to say this person is with Jesus? Non-believer, listen to me. Peter makes it clear for you the only way to prepare this morning is to bow your heads and say, be merciful upon me, a sinner. Would everyone bow their heads and close their eyes this morning? I'm going to ask this morning after the service, I'm going to be down front, and I can't say this enough, I will wait right here at this altar and make sure that I talk with everyone who wants to be saved, and I will do so if that leads us into the night. If you want to prepare for Christ this morning, and you don't know Him as your Savior, the only way to do so is through repentance and acknowledging Him today. You cannot go to heaven without Jesus. And you are not prepared while you live in the futility of this life. If you're not sure how to be saved, I want you to just... I want you to just for a moment, for a moment, because there are no magic words, I want you to consider what this moment is. Peter says this moment is not God's slowness, it is God's moment of mercy and patience. 
you are alive for this very moment to be reconciled to God. If you are not reconciled to God through the blood of Jesus Christ, you have opportunity right now. You can silently pray this prayer. Father, I am not prepared. I know you're coming. And I want to be prepared. Forgive me of my sins. And in this moment, I claim the name of Jesus Christ as my substitute, as my only Savior, and as my Lord. Help help me by your Holy Spirit. Help me by your Holy Spirit to live this Christian life in preparation and in godliness and in holiness. Father, I pray for my brothers and sisters who are struggling today to live for you. I pray for all of us, including me, Father. Help us as we await the second coming of your Son. You sent Jesus to come and to die that all who believe in his name would have eternal life. And now as we wait, Lord, for his second coming, help us to prepare ourselves in holiness and in godliness. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.